Master Plumbers Radio, bringing you all the stuff you won't learn in trade school. Uh, welcome to Master Plumbers Radio. My name is Daniel Carroll, and today my guest is Wayne Schwoss. Since capturing Australia's attention as one of the most successful football players in AFL history, Wayne Schwoss has gone on to make a name for himself in more ways than one. Uh, born in New Zealand and raised in Warrnambool, Western Victoria, Wayne Schwoss began playing Aussie rule footballs at the age of 10. But with his undeniable talent and passion, it's not long before he was recruited to join AFL. So in 1986, Wayne began playing for the North Melbourne Football Club. From here, Wayne went from strength to strength, quickly becoming one of the most highly rated players in AFL history. Wayne played 282 games at the elite level for 14 and a half years, both with the North Melbourne Football Club and the Sydney Swans. Since retiring in 2002, Wayne has established himself as a highly respected AFL broadcaster on TV, radio, print and online. And in addition to his work within the sporting field, Wayne has also become a passionate advocate for mental health awareness. Welcome, Wayne. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, before we get into the great work you've been doing in the mental health space and uh, with your charity, Puck Up, I'd like to talk a little bit about your life before that. Uh, born in New Zealand and raised in Warrnambool, what was your life like growing up and how'd you find football? Uh, I found footy by default because my dad was a cricketer and um, I remember watching his last training session for the cricket season and then not long after that, I uh, saw these guys come out with silly looking jumpers and footy shorts on and just sat there mesmerised at the age of 10 and said to Dad that day, I said, wouldn't mind playing this game of footy and um, spent uh, 14 years growing up in Warrnambool. It was a great place to grow up and I, I had a really good childhood. Uh, at North Melbourne, you played 282 games, as I said before, uh, at that elite level, spanning 15-year career, uh, 10 at North Melbourne and five with the Sydney Swans. Uh, you also joined a very select group of winning best and fairest at, at uh, multiple clubs. I imagine that between the start and finish of your football career, the rigours of the top-level football would somehow have changed from the start to the end? Oh, 100%. We had full-time jobs when I first started as well as playing footy, trained twice a week, played on the weekend and had a recovery run. Yeah. Um, and then by the time that I'd finished, um, I was a full-time football player had no other occupation outside of that, and we were uh, five days a week plus a game. Um, so the transformation from when I started to where I finished um, probably went through three different iterations, and um, it was you know it was, a, it was a good experience. And it was during this time playing football that you were diagnosed with depression. Yeah, 19, 9th of August, nineteen ninety three. It was a pivotal moment in my life because that was the beginning of a journey that I've been on ever since. Um, I remember the 26th of July just as vividly because that was was a Monday night and I had a breakdown in the car on my way home from training. Okay. And I went through the same thing every day for two weeks before my wife thankfully encouraged me to go and see the doctor and I did that. On the 9th of August 1993, she, I and my doctor sat in a room for 45 minutes and he diagnosed me with depression. That was the beginning of a... Fairly challenging 12 years for me. Jeez, I can imagine. Um, in my research for this interview, I had, had a look on the internet. Uh, there's a few, um, there's a, a pretty good documentary, which, which I'll touch on a little bit later. But I saw a video on the North Melbourne website. Um, we responded to a tweet that you put out in 2017. Yeah. I think it was. And for the people listening, uh, the picture uh, at the conclusion of the um, 96, 96 yep. grand final 
uh, being number two, Wayne was first called up onto the Premiership dais to receive his Premiership medallion and uh, receiving that from Captain Blood, Jack Dyer, for those of you who don't know, um, standing um, arms outstretched, um, Premiership medallion hanging around your your neck and uh, just achieved a goal that many people looking at footballers would only love to do, Uh, yet below that picture was uh, the words, and I quote, this is what suicidal looks like. Fake smile, act happy, celebrating premiership success with the North Melbourne Football Club in 1996. Truth was, incredibly suicidal, looking for my wife in the crowd because I wanted to win my life. Only two people knew in a crowd of 95,000, my wife and my GP. It's a very, very brave message. Uh, Tell us about that day. Well, I don't see it as brave, Daniel, to be honest with you. It's just the truth. Um, it, I shared that because I want people to understand that mental health conditions and suicide can affect any one of us. You can be a premiership player, you can be reasonably well paid, you can be doing something that very few people get the opportunity to do, um, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you don't or aren't exposed with mental health conditions. And um, on that particular day, it's a, it's a great moment in my life. I, I, I love it. Um, I have fond memories of it, but the reality is that I was three years into my diagnosis by that stage. It had uh, morphed into depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder. So I had three concurrent mental health conditions, which were wrecking havoc on every area of my life. Um, yet I was able to go out on the biggest day of my sporting career and become a premiership player and have a reasonably good game. But I used, I used that photo because it's really important that people understand that material possessions and money have nothing to do with happiness because I had all of the things that you would think or assume would make you happy, yet I was miserable and I was thinking about how I could end my life. Um, and that was a struggle that I was in for four and a half years. And just doing my maths there, 96 minus a couple of years, you won two best and fairest at North Melbourne at that time. Yeah. And for people that uh, don't follow football that closely, there's a man by the name of Wayne Carey who at that time was at the peak of his powers and you won a club best and fairest in front of him. So it just goes to show you how you can still be performing at a higher level while um, dealing with other issues. Yeah, I'm really glad you've said it that way because that's one of the messages that I share with people, um, that you can achieve anything you want to achieve whilst living with mental health conditions. Um, and I think, I think that's encouraging for other people. It doesn't have to stop your life. Um, it doesn't have to prevent you uh, from achieving what it is that you want to do or would like to pursue. Um, but if I had my time again, I'd do things very differently. I've played a little bit of football at a much lower level than uh, what you've been able to achieve, but um, I know what you mean about or I can understand having to hold on to some of these things because of the stigma and everything else that's attached. Um, One of the things that uh, you talk about a lot with um, Pucker Up, your work at Pucker Up, is the hashtag, the stigma stops with me. How important is that for people to understand that... Um, these sort of things exist and the stigma needs to break down for people to move forward? Look, I think the vast majority of people accept and respect the fact that these conditions exist. 
we need to we need to be very careful and we need to be respectful enough to acknowledge that these are legitimate medical health conditions fact proven research supports it it's irrefutable these aren't things that people imagine these aren't things that people do for attention and these aren't issues or challenges that we can just pull our socks up and get over it we can snap our fingers and get out of it and we can put on a smiley face and think happy thoughts and it's all behind us because that's not the reality of it. I wish it was that simple. And the hashtag stigma stops with me is really important because I lived with so much shame, guilt and embarrassment for 12 and a half years because of the way that I thought towards myself because I had mental health conditions. And if I'm being really honest, I used to think that mental health conditions were for people that were weak, that had character flaws, that had done something wrong, were bad people. That I mean, that's such an ignorant and uneducated position. I don't think that way anymore. But I didn't respect myself and I was convinced that other people would lose respect for me once they found out that I was living with mental health conditions. Um, so I didn't say anything. There were only four people in 12 and a half years that knew what I was living with, my wife and three professionals. I never talked to my father, my parents. I never talked to my family, my friends or my teammates or coaches. So I hid that behind this paralyzing fear of shame. Yeah. And that's that's that was that prevented me from getting healthy, from getting well for a long period of my life. And I, you, everybody has an opportunity, but also think we have a responsibility. We need to we need to stand up. And if stigma exists, it needs to stop because it's stopping people from getting help. And it's also potentially a contributing reason why we lose so many people to the issue of suicide. And that's not right. No, not at all. And in an environment like a footy club, which in the modern day is much like a business where you get, you probably see the people that you work with more than you do your own family. In an environment like a footy club where there are so many people, teammates, coaches and everything else, was there any instance over that time where someone – Noticed that you weren't quite hundred percent, or were you that good at being able to mask? Oh, I think I was on? pretty good. I think I was pretty good at uh, pretending and hiding it. There would be a couple of my teammates, my closest teammates, that I think knew something wasn't right, yeah. but we never had a conversation, and I, I would never have entertained having a conversation with them because I, I, I lived in fear every day of yeah. what they think. Um, I think. I think most of my teammates and coaches just would have thought that I was a moody prick. Happy one day, moody the next. Yeah. Truth of the matter was that I was emotionally and, and, and spiritually broken. Yeah. I didn't know how to deal, nor was I dealing with the issues that I was trying to work through. And what made that experience harder was men aren't meant to be vulnerable. That's yeah. what I grew up with. Men aren't meant to be soft. We aren't meant to talk. We aren't meant to show emotions. And under no circumstances in an AFL environment are you meant to cry yeah. or expected to cry. Um, so I didn't. I can't tell you the number of times over that 12-and-a-half-year journey that all I wanted to do was cry with my teammates and tell them what I was going through, but I never yeah. did. I never took the chance. And what I've, what I've learnt, Daniel, is the definition of what it means to be a man and masculinity has fundamentally changed for me. Um, I, I did not show any of those vulnerable emotions for a long period of my life. Yeah. Nearly killed me 
because I thought that men weren't meant to behave that way. So when we deny ourselves the ability to feel, to think and communicate, to cry, we actually deny ourselves some really important skills and traits that allow us to work through challenging situations. So I talk a lot more now. Okay. I'm vulnerable. Yeah. I'm honest. Uh, I cry. And I don't care what people think because I understand, I've learned to appreciate that for me, having all of those emotions available to me is really important because it allows me to be a whole person. Yeah. And what drives me every day is that every day in Australia, we lose on average eight people a day to suicide and six are men. Yeah. Six of those suicides every day in Australia are men. Why is that happening? Because we live in a world that conditions men to disconnect emotionally because that's not what a man is meant to do. That's wrong and that's got to change. You mentioned before a couple of things that you've changed since uh, the way that you're able to be more open and talk much more. Um, What sort of coping mechanisms did you have back then to be able to sustain um, uh, that that period of your life? Was football like a bit of an escape or was... Um, Sometimes, but not often. There were, I, I, was, I was diagnosed when I played 97 games of footy. I played the remainder of my, two, my 282-game career. Yeah. So I played close to 200 games hiding mental health conditions. And there were rare days where I was engaged, happy, enjoying it, you know, loving the thrill of playing footy. But the majority of the games after being diagnosed, I was isolated, disconnected and really struggling. And the way that I chose to cope through that challenging period was to self-medicate with alcohol and drugs. Let me be very clear to anyone who's listening to this. Alcohol is depressant. It's a drug. It's legal and it's accepted by the community. That's okay. I get that. But it's a drug. And if you're using alcohol to medicate yourself whilst living with these conditions... Trust me, I did a very thorough six-year experiment. It doesn't work. Marijuana, anything else I could get my hands on, I abused it. Because I didn't have the skills or courage to talk to people about it. So I just self-medicated to numb the pain. doesn't work. And again, in a a footy club situation, that really wouldn't look too much out of place if you were going out afterwards and having a couple of beers or whatever else. That's what we did. We played hard on the field and we played hard off the field. And, And one of the reasons for... I never drank to enjoy the taste of alcohol. I never drank to enjoy the experience. I drank to get absolutely polaxed for two reasons. One, the more I drank, the more my brain stopped thinking. And secondly, I drank because it prevented me from showing the emotions that were underneath the surface. And the fear of my teammates and family seeing me cry was paralyzing. So I did everything I could to make sure I never did any of that. In 2006, four years after four years out of your footy career, uh, you went on to, uh, to start up the Sunrise Foundation, um, an organisation focused on delivering preventative education programs to secondary school students. How, how was that? It was fantastic because it was the first time in 15 years that I was being honest. I did a two-page story in the Herald Sun before we launched it. Yeah. It was the first time in 15 years I told the truth because I got sick of living the lie. I lived a lie for 15 years. And the lie was I hid my mental health conditions. So there would have been a lot of people opening that paper yeah, and hearing for the first time. It was out. And what's interesting about that decision is that I got control of my life back. 
I didn't have to pretend anymore. What people think of me is not my business. I, I, I've got no control over what people think or yeah. say or do. The only thing I have control over is my life and the decisions that I make about it. Yeah. And um, it was liberating because... Great weight off the shoulders. Tremendous. And, and what's interesting is I lived in fear for that period that people would lose respect for me, they'd judge me, they'd criticise me, and the people that I cared about who I had relationships with, I was convinced that I'd lose them. Yeah. I've lost three relationships over the past 25 years. I was convinced I'd lose every relationship. Yeah. So what I learned through that decision to go public was that all the things that I thought I'd lose, I didn't lose. Okay. But I carried that fear with me for 15 years, convinced that that's what I would lose. It's not worth it. It's part of the Sunrise Foundation. There's more than 5,000 students that participated in the Foundation's Head Smart program. And then you went on to a corporate sales role with Telstra, I believe. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah. Um, however, your passion for health and well-being ultimately drew you back to mental health and uh, the advocacy behind that. And it was that passion that led you to create Puck Up, a social enterprise focusing on mental health, emotional well-being, and importantly, suicide prevention. The Pucker Up vision is to create the environments for every person to have authentic and genuine conversations about mental health and emotional well-being. Tell us about after the, the first with the uh, Sunrise Foundation, have a little bit of time off. What you what got you back in? Um, with all due respect to my previous employer, I sat with my boss after five years of working with them and said, you know, I can go and sell any form of technology to a business and it helps them do business better. Yeah. But it hasn't changed anyone's life. Yeah. And um, I'm a person that is very passionate. I'm a person that, needs to do something that has purpose. And my former sales job, there was no passion, there was no purpose. And I was given an opportunity from my old chairman from the Sunrise Foundation. Uh, He put an opportunity in front of me and said that he would like to support me to bring Pucker up to life. And uh, the reality is that that is what I am most passionate about and that is... I can sit here right now, Daniel, at the age of 50 and say the reason why I'm on this earth is to do the work I do today Yeah, because it's my purpose. Footy was a chapter that was a part of my life and I continue to write those chapters and hopefully I continue to write many more chapters. Football used to define who I was. Football is a chapter written a long time ago, but football has given me the platform to do the real work and it's the real reason why I'm here and that's to lead Pucker up that's to prevent people from ending their lives and that is to fundamentally shift the focus away from people getting into crisis through education so that one day we live in a world where people are able to manage their well-being proactively as opposed to waiting until they get really unwell. And you can definitely, uh, your passion comes out in everything that you see through Pucker Up with its TV appearances, uh, follow on social media. And uh, I mentioned before I saw the uh, the documentary, the Pucker Up Grand Tour. Grand Tour. Yep. Um, I recommend it. Anyway, you don't have to have a, a passion for bike riding or anything like that. You just get, have have a have a watch. Um, just type in uh, Pucker Up documentary is what I searched for on Google, and it came up. And it was um, it was entertaining. There's a few laughs and a few jokes and all that sort of stuff. But more than anything, it was it was um, uh, very educational for what. Um, uh, what mental health 
means for different people. And that goes from, you know, there's people that are high-level business CEOs right down to people that just like going out and riding their bike on the weekend. Um, uh, mental health doesn't discriminate. And um, watching that documentary, um, as I said before, there's people from all, all ages and all walks of life um, that shared their stories on um, how they or someone that they knew had been dealing with mental health. That extends to the job side as well. So rates of suicide are growing alarmingly among uh, people in construction, young people and older people. Um, the increased emotional physical strain on the modern tradie, um, coupled with the macho image that they're um, expected to maintain, is almost creating the perfect storm for people to sort of really have a problem. Yeah, I couldn't. Have, I couldn't have. I couldn't have said that any better. Um, the construction industry, and this is not to point the finger, and I don't want people to interpret this that I'm, I'm, I'm blaming anyone or anybody or any organisation, but the reality is that the construction industry, along with the mining industry, resources industry, even the financial industry, the rates of people that work in those industries that are living with significant mental health conditions, that are in crisis, that are thinking about taking their life or are taking their life, are disproportionately higher to the rest of the general population. So it's, it's an issue, and it's an issue everywhere. And um, I'm incredibly passionate, Daniel, about challenging the definition of masculinity and the narrative that a lot of males, myself included, have been fed for decades. And the reason why I want to challenge that and why I think we need to reframe what it means to be a man yep. and the expectation that we have of ourselves and other men is because, as I said before, the end of every 24-hour period, six of the eight suicides in Australia are men because we grow up in a world that expects men to be strong and stoic, not to be vulnerable, not to cry, not show emotions. What we're actually doing is we're limiting men's ability to stay connected emotionally. It's not weak to be vulnerable. It's not weak to cry. It's not weak to ask for help. It's not weak to, it's not weak to put your hand up and seek professional help. Mm-hmm. And if we if we don't challenge the messaging around that, um, we cannot realistically expect to address the issue within the construction industry, but to address this issue across the country. The numbers of people living with these conditions going up. The number of people taking their lives is going up. We had three thousand one hundred and twenty eight in two thousand and seventeen. The year before was two thousand eight hundred and sixty six. And don't think that this is a male issue. Yeah. Men are three times more likely to achieve the outcome of ending their life. Okay. But three times as many women are attempting. Yeah. So this is a male and female issue. It's a human being issue. And I can respect people can have different opinions, but if we don't create spaces for men in particular to come into and to talk about what it is that's causing them concern, causing them some stress, upsetting, is painful is um, impacting their life negatively, then what we're actually doing is we're limiting their ability to connect emotionally and get the right help that they need to help them through that crisis. In addition to the, the stats you just mentioned before, the 3,128 from 2017, um, I saw in my research that is a very, very alarming figure that 20 times that amount attempted so that's 65,000 people. 65,500 people attempt to end their lives every year in Australia. That would make it the fifth largest town in Victoria and the 27th largest town in Australia. Wow. 
Yep. And it's currently the leading cause of de- suicide is the leading cause of death in people aged 15 to 44. Yep. That is crazy. Yep. It's it's if if that is not alarming enough for individuals for communities, for businesses and for this entire country to sit back and go, we've got to address this, then I don't know what is. Having said all of that, Pucker Up's focus is on addressing it because it needs to change. We're losing too many valuable people within our communities, within our businesses, within our country that we believe don't have to end their life We've got to do something proactively that gives these people the opportunity and the space for them to get the appropriate help that they need much earlier. So going back to the, the work site, um, there's a couple of things that we need to consider. I'll, I'll ask a two-part question. Um, number one, uh, what are the warning signs? What sort of things can, be, can we be looking out for to help our mates so warning signs or signs and symptoms of somebody being under emotional stress. And under emotional stress could be they're stressed, lack of sleep, yeah. agitated. They might be coming to work late. They might be going for longer lunches. They might be leaving work earlier. They may not even be coming to work. Yeah. They might be increasing their alcohol intake. Could be confrontational. Could be argumentative. Um, could be isolating, normally engaged, Normally, someone who can be part of a conversation is starting to disengage from that, normally go out with other tradies or mates, not returning phone calls, not replying to emails or text messages, not going to social settings. They're all things that could potentially indicate somebody may be under emotional stress. Um, And I think they're things that we can look out for. Um, But I think having the ability to identify something that may give you reason to think that something's not right is half of what should happen. Mm -hmm. The next half of it, and this is just as important, if not more important, is how do I have this conversation with someone that I'm concerned about? And it's got to be done in such a way that your language, your tone, the way that you deliver the message is supportive and non-judgmental. Because if we try to call someone out, it may be, it may have quite a negative impact on how that person responds. It really needs to be about creating a space which is safe that invites the person that you're worried about into a conversation. And it may be something as simple, hey, Daniel, let's go and have a coffee. Mate, is everything okay? I've I've noticed I'm not sure what the problem is, but you seem to be a little bit different. If you want to talk to me about it, I just want you to know that I'm here to talk to. I, I may not have the answers, yeah. but I just want you to know it's important for me that you know if you want to talk to somebody that you can trust, okay. I'm prepared to listen. And that, that's a really simple example of how we can begin these conversations because what it's doing, it's giving you, the person that I'm worried about, the option to choose whether or not you want to come in the conversation. I'm not, okay. not criticising you. I'm not putting you down. I'm not telling you that you're weak. I'm not telling you to harden up and be a man because – that, that is destructive language. If I use that language, I may be manifestly making the situation for a person I'm concerned about, especially a man, worse yeah. because I'm telling him that he's weak and he's soft. Yeah. So I don't use any of that. Yeah. I use language and questions that hopefully create a space where the person that I'm concerned about can trust me enough to talk to me about it. 
because I can see that they've been a pretty um, delicate subject and something that's really hard to navigate, you know, considering most guys out there, girls as well, you know, have a little bit of banter. Yep. Oh, that's weak as piss. Yep. Or whatever. Um, you probably don't understand the weight of what your language can do to someone else. A hundred percent. I think something that may have no meaning to us. Yeah, you you might not know what you're saying. Yeah. But that could have a incredibly negative impact. And again, I'll go back to my own experience. When I live with my mental health conditions, you and I could have been having this discussion and it could have been incredibly positive. But there might have been a look that you gave me, a word that you used or a message that you gave me, which that's the only thing that I heard or saw because my radar when I was emotionally unwell was so um, heavily skewed to any negativity signs or messages that I was getting back. So the language and messages that people would give me unintentionally had an incredibly negative impact on me because I I already saw myself as a failure. Mm -hmm. So I'm not an expert. But I've got a lived experience and I work in this space. Language, tone, delivery are really important because all I want to do is I want to facilitate a space for somebody I care about to be able to come into and talk to me about whatever they, whatever they want to talk to me about. And I have these conversations with a lot of male mates. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened 10 years ago because my male mates and even complete strangers, I won't judge them. All I'm interested in is how can I support this person who may be going through a tough time? We've all got the same opportunity. And um, you, you tweeted something recently that caught my eye. We book our vehicles in for servicing because we don't want them to break down. It makes sense to book ourselves in for servicing too so we won't break down. We prioritise the health of our cars. It's the time to start doing that with our own health. I believe, I believe in it. It's so true because I think the closest I come to an annual checkup is when I go to the dentist to get my teeth checked out. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. And the reason why I do that is I'm trying, I'm trying to make – I'm trying to uncomplicate what can be a very complicated set of conditions. And I've delivered 15 years of presentations all over the country and I ask these questions all the time. Yeah. We invest into our physical health because we know it's important. And the two overriding reasons why we all invest at some point in the past or we are now into our physical health is we're preventing sickness and we don't want to die any sooner than we have to. So human beings understand physical health is important. We apply the same strategies and principles to our cars. We don't book it in for a six-month service. Tires will wear, um, brakes might start to rub, and if we don't invest into a preventative service, car could break down. So our attitude and application to our physical health and the health of our cars is the same. But having done this for 15 years, and this is not to be critical of people, between 5 and 15% of people are doing the same for their mental health and emotional well-being as they are with their vehicles and their physical health. Part of our job is to help more people understand that it's just as important we do the same thing for our physical health as we do our mental health. Why would we ignore our emotional health? Mm -hmm. If we don't invest into staying healthy emotionally, having strategies and tools that allow us to have good mental health, and we ignore that or we don't understand that that's starting to, to suffer, what will happen is we will break down. Yeah. And I've broken down. I don't want to break down again, so I invest into it. What sort of things uh, is, does that involve? Is it like diet, exercise? So I'm coming up 400 days of not touching alcohol. Oh, really? It's a depressant. It doesn't allow me to get good sleep. 
I need quality sleep okay. because that allows me to rest my mind and body to recover. Yeah. Um, diet is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a predominantly plant-based diet, and that's just my choice. Um, other people can make their own choices, but it's a healthy diet. Don't drink alcohol. I prioritize sleep. I, I'm a cyclist, so I ride as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most important thing in my checklist and toolbox is that I talk to key people in my network of support. My okay. dad, my wife, my GP, and a couple of my close mates. Yeah. And I talk to them all the time when things are going well and when things aren't going well. Mm-hmm. Because I and, and, and also I factor into that is that last year I had two really challenging bouts of anxiety. Okay. So I went, I went back on medication. Okay. They're the things that I will always prioritize because I know those things give me the best opportunity of being healthy and well. Okay. And it's a matter of that works for me, but other people need to find what works for them. And once you've found what works for you for them, keep doing it. Because that preventative strategy is a much better thing to invest into as opposed to reacting when the shit hits the fan. I know if you need your if you need to become fitter, you go out and exercise. Um, if you need to lose weight, you know you manage your diet. I've I've read a lot of uh, articles recently about um, the uptake in people um, taking part in things like meditation, whatever, to almost exercise their mind um, just to get them thinking differently, to put a little bit of space between what they've done and what they need to do. Um, have you had any experience with that? Yeah. Has it, is it worked? Meditation I have. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think they're all valuable tools that people should at least give a try to. Yeah. It may or may not work. Um, I, I think it's worth exploring all of the available things that we can do for ourselves, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, um, there's even a new strategy called tapping where you're using your fingers to tap pressure points okay. all over your body, which the research is now starting to support and show that that's having a, a fantastic impact on people who are living with anxiety. Okay. So, again, I, I can't tell people what to do, Daniel, but I can certainly encourage them if you aren't investing into your mental health and emotional well-being, my question is Why? What's holding you back? What's preventing you? And then more importantly, what can you do for yourself? It's taken me 25 years to get to the position that, I, that I'm in today. Mm-hmm. Um, I manage my well-being. I don't live mm-hmm. with mental health conditions. Even my own internal narrative has changed because managing my well-being puts me in control of my health. Okay. And I've also I've come to realise and accept that my health ultimately, physically and emotionally, it's my responsibility. Yeah. So I've got to take charge of that. So um, I've just made decisions and continue to make decisions that give me the best opportunity to be happy and healthy. So in, in relation to um, our audience on a, on a work site, you've got two, I guess, breaking it down for two messages for two different types of people. You've got the people out there like on the ground floor that are um, uh, on the tools doing the everyday stuff and you've also got the people at the other end who are managing the businesses have you got any advice for number one people that are, um, you know, all, all the workers, and then two the people that are responsible for the well-being of those people? Yeah, I would. I would ex- yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of answers. One is to anyone who's listening to this conversation, 
who's going through a tough time right now, I want to just talk to them for a second. Um, I appreciate and admire how tough it is because it's a difficult, shitty experience sometimes if you're dealing with these type of conditions. But your ability to get up, to go to work, to do your job and deal with whatever it is that you're dealing with takes a lot of strength and courage and I admire you for that. If it's having a, an impact in your life, my strong advice is go and seek help. Don't do what I did and ignore your health for six years, self-medicate through alcohol and drugs because it doesn't work. Put your hand up or go and find someone that you can trust and ask for help because once you get help, you can start to get healthy and well again. That is the most important thing. And then to the people who are managing teams of people, invest into them. What question, what messages am I sending as a leader? Am I inclusive? Am I supportive? Or am I regurgitating things that may have been said to you as you were working your way through the industry? Toughen up, man up. Don't be weak. Don't be soft. Don't be a girl. Don't be a pussy. They're, they're not helpful. Yeah. And it doesn't help somebody who might be going through a really difficult situation. So if you're a manager or a business owner, you're a leader. What type of leader are you? Do you want your people to feel in support, inspired and supported? Do you want to help them through a difficult situation? Or do we want to be part of the problem? And that's a question those people need to answer. Fantastic. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to chat with us today. All the best with whatever comes next with Pucker Up and um, let's hope we can all work together to bring those numbers down. I appreciate the opportunity to have a talk with you, Daniel, and I appreciate and commend the Master Plumbers Association for beginning to open up this conversation for the people that work in your industry. It's fantastic. Well done. You have been listening to Master Plumbers Radio. Check out the Master Plumbers website at plumber.com.au or hit us up on email at podcast at plumber.com.au. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram.